The information and opinions presented in this ARC Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes. This is the ARC Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the ARC Energy Ideas podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Tertzakian. Welcome back. Jackie, I don't know what to talk about. I mean, there's so much going on. $80 plus oil, COP26 in Scotland, just around the corner. In Alberta here, we had elections, mayoral election, daylight saving time, referendum on the Constitution, Adele's new song. I don't know. What do you want to talk about? Definitely Adele's new song. Okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> What's uh, it about? Is it about divorce or something? Yeah, her, her songs are always sad, but that's mm. what you, why you love them so much. So. I see. And she's going to come out with a whole new album. So okay. this is just like the first of many. So that's pretty exciting. Well, there's a lot of other sad news out there, but we'll leave that alone. And we'll talk about pop culture and her new song over a glass of wine. But today we are going to have a repeat guest, which we're very excited about. We have on the line from Toronto, Barbara Svon. She is now the inaugural president and CEO of the University Pension Plan. And that is a jointly sponsored pension plan, a JSP. You know, we have acronyms and we have three-letter shortenings of all sorts of things. So this is a JSP. We're going to learn about that. And she currently serves um, for a membership of other universities, Queen's University, University of Guelph, University of Toronto, and more universities are expected to join this JSP in the future. And we're going to talk a lot about Barbara's expertise, which is in sustainable finance. So, Barbara, welcome back. We're delighted to have you. Thank you. So pleased to be here again, especially as an avid listener. So thank you both for producing this podcast. You do a great job explaining a lot of really complex topics. Great. Well, thanks for joining. And, you know, you're one of, I think, only the second time we've had a repeat person. I do want to talk a little bit about the June 2019 report. That's when you came on last time, Barbara, and you had been a member of the Canadian government's expert panel on sustainable finance that had released all these recommendations. And you continue to be quite dedicated to pushing that forward, as Peter said. So I just wanted you to tell us a little bit about your new role at University Pension Plan. I joined the University Pension Plan last year as the CEO, so it was about mid-last year. And I'll give a little bit of context. Uh, UPP, just for another acronym, it's a startup and a merger, so which is really quite exciting. You know, I kind of probably came in around the seventh inning, so UPP was actually born incredibly by probably a decade of work of collaboration between employees, administrators, governors of these founding universities, so the three Queens, Guelph, and Toronto. And they all came together because they really believed in the DB pension model, that it would commit to strengthening pension security for its members. So as Peter noted, it's a jointly sponsored pension plan. And that means it has governance from both the employers and employees on certain key decisions. So they decide things like the benefits and contributions within the regulatory framework. They appoint my board and they decide when a new pension plan can enter, which universities want to join, that sort of thing. So I was brought in to stand up the organization itself to manage about $11 billion of money from this July 1st and to minister the plan for about 35,000 members. So when I took on this responsibility last year, I was employee number one, really had to focus on building the foundational capabilities. When I started, there was no bank account. So there was really quite a lot to build. So the first priority was really bringing a team together, a team that liked to build, who liked the startup environment, and really sort out what's first, what's second type of thing. 
And maybe I'll know that it was completely during COVID to add to the excitement. <laughs> we don't even have an office yet. And maybe soon. So, and even till the summer, we really didn't even see each other. So we had a lot of banter of who was taller. So we're really fortunate because we are leveraged a lot of things from the universities as we onboard them. So job one is to provide pension security to our members, excellent service, and the goal is to track others. And why I stay involved is really to the heart of how do you provide pension security. And a big part of that is understanding the impacts, both the risks and the opportunities from climate change. You know, when you're in business for 60, 70 years to secure a member's pension, that's the time frame you have to think about. Mm -hmm. So would you say that... uh I mean, I'm almost going to ask a rhetorically obvious question, but that consolidation of pension plans is a theme because small pension plans that control a billion dollars or less, even some of them, are just too small to be able to hire enough staff to understand all the risks of things like climate change and by no means the only set of risks in the volatile world these days. Is that really the impetus behind this whole JSP thing? Probably a few instances. So there is definitely savings in terms of costs and ability to hire more expertise with the larger pools of money. But the bringing together and actually making it a jointly sponsored pension plan, that gives members a say, and that was really important to them. So they're actually involved in their pension plan and some of the key decisions of their pension plan. And no doubt they have a lot to say about things like ESG what can be invested in, what is sustainable finance, and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely, because it is a, a key thing when they think about their pensions and they think forward. Mm-hmm. You know, how we invest is a key part of making right. sure their pension's secure. Let's switch topics to the big news last week. The Canadian Institutional Investors, a group of them that represent $3 trillion of assets under management, 27 different investors, which include most of the large pension plans in Canada, including uh, your pension group. As well, there's a number of other groups associated with it, like UNPRI, RA Canada, Share and, and Series. And it also talked about um, this initiative is leveraged strategic leadership from yourself, Barbara Zahn. So this Climate Engagement Canada release said that these groups are going to come together. They are going to be akin to the Global Climate Action 100 Plus, which has put some pressure on companies around the world to sign up to take greater action when it comes to climate Your group also talked about the fact that they want Canadian companies to be part of a just transition. So tell us a bit about this announcement. So maybe I'll start with Climate Action 100 Plus and describe how the recommendation came to be. Just in case your listeners don't know, Climate Action 100 Plus is an engagement initiative. So what does that mean? It's usually in investments means that the investor who invests in the companies will engage in a multi-year dialogue with a company saying, here's what's important to us as an investor to see that you're a company to do because we're an investor and we're really concerned around the value and the risk of our investments. The Climate Action 100 Plus is a collaboration of now I think over 600 global investors and they focus on the highest emitters in the world. So there's about 160, 170 companies in that. And they're really there to promote change around climate change. It's absolutely a successful model and certainly the inspiration But during the expert panel on sustainable finance that I was part of, you know, we looked and there was only really six Canadian companies in that 160-ish companies. So really leaving a lot of the Canadian companies out of scope. They're really just not large enough on the global scale. 
And so they haven't benefited from the collaborative dialogue with investors. So the expert panel stood back and said, hmm. So the question is how we adapt Climate Action 100 Plus to the Canadian landscape so we can drive a similar and strong message at home. And we also wanted to ensure that a big theme of our report is that the unique realities of Canada were considered. And so that drove our recommendation and really wanted to thank those four founding investor associations because they really made it happen. So RIA, SHARE, PRI, and Series. And so really the initiative is really to create a strong, unified voice from this financial community. So those 27 financial institutions, the $3 trillion to help talk to issuers to say, here's our expectations, here's what we think needs to happen to drive Canada's business transition. Mm-hmm. And everyone's telling me, so practically, how does that happen? How do you facilitate that? And, you know, it's really, you have 27 investors, they're going to be divided up into teams. They're going to be supported by analysis to say, where is this company relative to its peers? And they will carry on multi-year engagements and there'll be benchmarking. And a lot of that benchmarking will leverage from Climate Action 100+. plus. Just to bring some clarity to what's happening here, I've long said that Corporate Canada or corporations at large often point fingers at government for instituting policy burdens that they have to respond to. And I've been saying that, well, you can do that, but actually the real policy burdens, the de facto policy burdens are coming from the financial community now that are effectively becoming a policy group driving things like ESG and responsible finance and transition and so on. So what you really have here is $3 trillion of Canadian money that's going down market. Down market means from the largest six Canadian companies into sort of the midsection and below of the Canadian market to effectively institute good practices around the transitional aspirations that we're uh, striving for. Is that a fair assessment of what's happening here? Absolutely. And we're able to do it effectively as a group and with one big, strong, consistent voice is the goal. So that requires standardization of a lot of things, right? Yeah. So what we'll be leveraging is Climate Action 100 Plus now being operating for many years. They have a, a benchmarking process where they ask a bunch of different questions What's the disclosure like? What's the governance like? And that is something that the Secretariat of the Engagement Initiative will help the investors prepare so it's done consistently. And so you can go in with a very informed position. So there's a lot of research behind it, not just talking. So Barbara, will will this group come to someone in corporate Canada and say, you know, you need a 2030 GHG reduction target. You know, you should be thinking about reducing your scope three emissions. Is, Is that kind of some of the questions that will be asked? So there's really a few guiding principles that will be part of this initiative. So first, we'll be asking for companies to have a strong governance. So we won't dictate what that governance is. And that governance usually means, you know, is it part of the board's mandate? Is it part of the board committee's mandate? Is there senior leadership involved? So typically investors don't dictate the answer, but they would say, we really would like to see and understand your governance. The second part is investors will ask companies to develop and implement a strategy to reduce emissions or build climate resiliency consistent with the goals of Paris. And so not our job to say what their strategy should be, but we would like to see the strategy and assess it. Parts of that need to include things like just transition. 
companies need measurable targets, and that will be sector relevant. They need to disclose in line with TCFD or that task force on climate-related financial disclosures, which is a framework that organizes climate information in certain ways that is useful for investors. And that also companies align their advocacy activities with the lines of Paris. So, you know, what group are they associating with or funding and what are they doing? Is it consistent with Paris or not? Okay, so you said a, a just transition. Can you describe what that means to you or to this group? Yeah, so just transition usually applies to the workers in the communities, whether it's the Canadian economy or the world, and talk about how they're impacted by the changes implemented to respond to climate change. And this was part of the 2015 Paris Agreement. And, you know, there's a lot of evidence and reports and stuff that shows that, hey, overall, the shift to a resilient, low-carbon economy will boost prosperity and be a net driver of jobs. Well, sure, but there's definitely transition elements for certain workers in certain communities as the shifts take place. And we know that many Canadians are employed in the natural resource sector that will be impacted. So the thought was under just transition is think about those workers, those communities, as you implement those changes, and so we don't leave any segments behind because that's not sustainable either. Mm-hmm. So would you be asking companies to train their employees for new skill sets? I sometimes think that's the government's uh, role more. Yeah, that could be, you know, help set up collective programs, help retrain. It could be multiple different ways depending on what the particular problem is. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about participation in this Okay, on the financial side, you've got the $3 trillion and the 27 biggest providers of capital. So in the world of government policy, if you don't participate, there's consequences and penalties. In this instance, strikes me the penalty is, well, if you don't follow and tick all the boxes, we're not going to invest in you, so you're cut off from the capital. And then sort of the corollary to that would be, if these companies don't participate, I mean, global capital is mobile, so they say, fine, I'm not going to get my money from the 27 Canadian ones. I'll just go to some state-owned sovereign wealth fund or hedge fund or something that doesn't care about any of these issues in the worst case. Well, what happens to companies or collectives of companies that say, fine, I'm not going to tick all those boxes? Yeah, and that's exactly, I think, why we need this. So if we go back to the expert panel report, underlying theme of that whole report was the risk of divestment in Canada, given its natural resource focus, oil and gas. You know, and many of the products might not be desired in the future or less they become lower emission profile. And so competitiveness was not just cost anymore, it was cost and clean. And that was the core of our report. And that doesn't happen. They will no longer attract the same types of capital. And then that's related back to the health economy. So hopefully this initiative Investors will often say, you know, they prefer engagement versus divestment. And there is absolutely pressure to divest from these sectors. Mm-hmm. And this gives the group a vehicle to engage with a strong voice together, coordinated efficiently. And if you don't own the company, so this is a group of you know, investors who think this is really important. You no longer have a voice and exactly. you no longer have yeah. a voice. And so that's at the crux of it. So this engagement initiative, its strongest asset is this strong unified voice mm-hmm. from the financial community that's in Canada. Well, I think that's really important because recently I was looking at the ownership of some of the large oil and gas companies, and the ownership structure has shifted dramatically to retail investors, mutual funds, and hedge funds. 
pension plans and others is relatively negligible. And I'm thinking, yeah, I mean, we've lost the engagement to actually influence outcomes here because ultimately corporations are responsible to their shareholders. Absolutely. And this is at the heart of it. We actually think engagement is a productive tool and hopefully companies will think the same. If we can articulate, you know, instead of having 27 different groups come in and express 27 different things, hopefully they'll have one group coming in saying, here's really the things we think are really important and that will invoke change. My impression with Climate Action 100 is they've mainly focused on large emitters, mostly oil and gas companies, and not focused across all types of companies. For example, I think you should also be talking to companies that produce products that use fossil fuels because that's influencing the demand. For instance, people that make engines, why aren't they making them way more efficient than they are today? Am I wrong with that? There is a a broad spectrum. When we were looking at the list for Climate Engagement Canada, the list isn't finalized, so you wouldn't find it on the website yet because we're just finalizing our own governance committees that will finalize the companies. But when we look at the list, the potential list, you know, exactly what you said, Jackie, there's more than oil and gas. There's transportation, there's manufacturing, mining, real estate, waste management. And this is intuitive because it impacts many sectors. And I don't think we would have seen such a large group of financial institutions if it wasn't cross-cutting all these sectors. And agriculture is another big one. You know, it's hard to say we're going to divest of agriculture because they emit too much, and they do emit a lot, because then you're going to sort of endanger your food supply. But, you know, I mean, these are the sort of difficult things that have to be reconciled, and maybe we can sort of move on to understanding this whole taxonomy, and maybe you can explain that word. In financial terms, there's often things called taxonomies. And what are they? The simplest way to think about them is it's a set of criteria, and that forms some sort of evaluation or grading process. And so this was one of the um, key recommendations, actually, from the expert panel was Canada needed a taxonomy. Yeah, it's very much like a biological taxonomy, right? Like kingdom, phylum, genus, or whatever it was. Remember from my high school biology Uh, which is pretty thin, but, you know, you're trying to apply that. And so under that sort of framework of categorization from primary source supplies of energy to how energy is consumed, then everybody can be on the same page in terms of what parts of this structure are part of sustainable finance, under what conditions, so on and so forth. Is that what's going on? Yeah. And, you know, is it green? You often hear the term green because it'll be there in 2050. You're hearing terms like transition, so it helps us along the way to 2050. And for investors without the deep expertise in these things, that's very hard to know. And that's where a taxonomy can really help them to say, okay, I understand that this was green and this is, you know, the best advice from people in the, say, whether it's scientists or the industry coming together, be able to give that investor confidence, right? Mm-hmm. Now, it sounds just so simple. Like, why don't you just come up with a definition of what's green? It's actually turned out to be quite difficult. Now, your report recognized that definitions in other places may be too narrow for Canada and that we needed our own. I take that as places like Europe who already have a taxonomy. That's not going to work for us. Can you just explain what you meant by that? Yeah, so in Europe, many years before our report decided that they needed a taxonomy and they decided to focus on what was green. And their version of green is what will be there in 2050. And, you know, it is really, I should stress that all these taxonomies try to solve that region's issues. So Europe has decided 
what is on this criteria that says are green investments that will help Europe reach its Paris targets? And we thought for Canada, you know, we should adopt a green taxonomy, something that maybe aligns with our global investment and trade priorities. But then we should work independently, whether it's ourselves or with other countries with similar resource endowments to say, what are the gaps? You know, what is the supplemental coverage that we need for our industry transition activities that are essential for Canada, but maybe not the EU? And so we really thought that was incredibly important for Canada. And also related back to one of our other recommendations that Canada needs to figure out what were the pathways for the different sectors. And then we could align this transition taxonomy to those pathways. Yeah, I mean, the, the really contentious part is that some folks like Europe say you can't invest in anything to do with oil and gas because that's not going to be around in 2050. Yet, in a place like Canada, a quarter of our emissions come from the oil and gas industry. So if we didn't raise capital to try to address those emissions, it would be hard for us to achieve our goals. You think it's simple, but it has taken a while. Now, there was an initiative started after your report came out in 2019, shortly after, by the Canadian Standards Association to work on what Canada's definition should be. Can you give us any update on the status of that process? Yeah, sure. The guidance, I believe, will be out before the end of the year. And just to put in context, so there was a private sector group, so industry from the finance area, as well as the industry like oil and gas and agriculture came together. And I think it was about 80 of them. So it was a big effort. And maybe I'll try to manage expectations for the first effort. You know, when you look at EU, it's very far along. Like there's numeric thresholds. There's a lot of detail. Even though this has been a two-year effort, it was not resourced the same way as Europe, which was backed by the government and had many times over that, you know, 80 people on that initiative. So I think what we can expect from the CSA is key principles, the activities that make sense for a transition. And I think this will be a good starting post, like it'll be a good guidepost and provide us what it did do, because remember this is all through the pandemic, provide us some real experience on what the effort was needed, the skills that were needed, the coordination that was needed. And it'll also give us an opportunity to get feedback. Once they release this document, what do people think? Is it too far? <laughs> you know, too much is in there, too little is in there. And so really all those 80 people in CSA need to be thanked for that. If you don't mind, I want to come back to this notion of no oil and gas and the European position, because every forecast I've seen, even from environmental groups and others, is that there is going to be oil demand by 2050. I mean, it's near impossible to get off fossil fuels within 28 years. And so this notion of what I would call a full sanction on the industry, in other words, no investment into oil and gas, I'm wondering in this taxonomy that we're coming out with is the idea of a conditional sanction. So let me explain in terms of the background. Like, if we think about sanctions on an international stage, we've told countries like Iran, we're not going to do trade with you unless you stop developing nukes. Okay, well, that's a conditional sanction. It means if you stop developing nukes, we will trade with you. So my question is, if oil and gas producers achieve net zero or achieve some other sets of targets between now and 2050. Would that not be a good conditional sanction? So what you're bringing up is there's taxonomies. So just so the listeners can appreciate, there's lots of taxonomies out there. You know, Climate Bond Initiative has a really interesting infographic where they have the developing and discussing. 
in UK, China, Russia, and you get to Mongolia, Indonesia, Vietnam. There's a slew of them, and they're all coming out for the regional needs. And so many regions have the same challenge as Canada. And a lot of different approaches to these taxonomies, a lot of different experimentation. But here, I think you're hitting on one of the issues that many of these groups and initiatives are tackling is a lot of these taxonomies are focused on the activity. So this activity very specifically, and they don't necessarily look at the entity level. So what is the company doing? What is the company committing to? So you're right. Like That is a really important part to look at what is the company doing holistically. And that's something that I know the CSA was trying to address, and hopefully we'll see their first approach before the end of the year. Now, some Canadian pension funds have moved forward with their own definitions because we've been waiting a while, you know, since 2019. For example, I hope I'm going to say this right for our French listeners, Caisse de Depot. Mm-hmm. Is that pretty good? Yeah, that's Peter? good. Yeah. They came out with a climate strategy, and they said that they are targeting a big investment, about $10 billion, towards areas they deem essential to the transition period. So this gets to what you're talking about, Barbara. Some are saying, you know, we'll only invest in stuff that exists in 2050. Others are recognizing some things are going to need some money in the transition. However, they clearly say that they are going to invest in things such as raw materials needed for the energy transition, so steel, copper, lithium, structural plastics. And they might be interested in things like fossil fuel alternatives that are adopted to the needs for the sector They talked about reducing methane specifically to the agricultural sector. So the way I took this is they're interested in reducing emissions for things they think are needed in 2050, like if you're going to build a a wind turbine, you're going to need steel and copper and, and things like that. But there was no mention of oil and gas here. So I took this as they're not interested in investing in energy as part of this, as as a means to make the transition happen. I'd just be interested in your perspective. And do you feel like there's a lot of Canadian pension plans that are moving forward with their own definition and it would look more like that? Or, or what's the status, do you think, in a lot of pension plans today? So it's hard to comment for the case, but the case is a, a large organization. I think they're over $400 billion. So they have, you know, as Peter noted, the bigger you are, the more resources you have to dedicate to these sorts of things. And I think one risk that we have is that everyone comes out with something unique in terms of definitions. In they have a particular view, and I think you see groups across the world with similar views. The one thing I could say in Canada, though, we're trying to, um, there was an announcement back in May by the government of Canada, both the finance and environment and climate change area, and they created something called the Sustainable Finance Action Council, and it's chaired by Kathy Bardswick, who used to run cooperators. And it was actually one of the recommendations from the expert panel was that we needed to keep this collaboration amongst public entities and private entities and them working together. And it would be a nice forum to actually implement some of the recommendations from the expert panel, one of them being of their first three focus areas of data and disclosure is a taxonomy. And so this will be on the website that if you look for it, there's 25 of Canada's largest financial institutions there. And one of the goals for us, because I'm leading this particular track, is actually come up with what's next for a taxonomy and hopefully build some consistency in at least the Canadian definition. And um, Peter, you're on the Net Zero Advisory Board, and you know one thing we're really hoping is working closely with that group to say, what are those transition pathways as a group, and we can align the taxonomy with it. Otherwise, we're at complete risk of everyone having a different definition. Yeah, we need the consistency in definition. I'm really hoping 
that this taxonomy, which is so necessary, we need clarity on these definitions, is then also presented to the companies to be able to provide feedback and say, yes, this is the way to do it, rather than a direct imposition and say, here, do it this way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, so the current effort does include industry participants. And the reason why I'm I'm excited for when it finally comes out, we can finally start getting feedback on it. Because what our job at the Action Council is, is to say, okay, where do we take this? What's the next steps? What are the resources needed to actually make it, for lack of a better word, permanent market infrastructure, something that's there that will be consistently there for investors to rely on? And for it to be recognized globally, it needs to have the backing of the government. And that's needed to be seen as credible. And so that's why the first effort, you know, won't take us as far as we need to is really important. I want to switch the topic to diversity. I know Canadian pension plans for a long time have focused on diversity, both, well, especially gender. But I know there's been a lot of changes in the last uh, couple of years since we've talked, and specifically this Black North initiative. So could you tell us a bit about that and about What's the focus of diversity today for pension funds? So diversity has been a big focus for pension funds and institutional investors in general for a long time. And I think it began with gender because, you know, it was easy to measure. And there was research out there that said you needed three women on the board to make a difference. One wasn't enough. And so it actually took time for that to happen. And there's an initiative called 30% Club that back in 2017 was trying to get 30% of board seats and C-suites to be women by 2022. And, you know, the TSX, not every index, but I think the number is around 30% for board. So that's great, except for there's still many companies under that average that we still have to work on. So gender identity was clearly important, but I think the industry has evolved to other forms of diversity. And investors are now looking at that more and more. You're starting to see that also in the shareholder voting process, where, for example, if you own a company, you have the right to vote on who's the board. So shareholders would be very clear if you don't have enough diversity, we'll no longer vote to nominate the board member who sits as the governance committee or the nominating committee chair, for example, or even more of the board members. And you're starting to see the language change from gender to all forms of diversity, you're starting to see more pledges with different forms of diversity, so it's it's expanding, and including the Black North, which just came out a year ago, that focuses on one particular aspect of the anti-Black racism to end. So I would say this will be a continuing focus. With that, we will wrap it up. We uh, really appreciate the update. I mean, that 2019 report had many recommendations, but I think we hit some of the, the big ones that that are moving forward today. So thank you very much for giving us an update. Yeah, thank you, Barbara. Thanks. Glad to be back. And to our listeners, thank you for joining the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on the app that you listen to. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.